1964, there weren't microphones. Yes, there were. In 1964, Lutheran singer-songwriter John Ilvesacker was angry. He was angry about the injustices faced by black and brown people in the United States and the demands from polite white society to take the civil rights movement slowly. Refrain from demonstrations, some white clergy said. Don't rock the boat. Such activism only stirs up more hate. Out of Vilvasacher's anger at this demand for patience came several songs released on his 1967 album, Blue Living, including this one, The Truth Comes Out. And after describing a couple dialogues with Christians who didn't like the way Jesus did certain things, from having wine at communion to treating people with equal dignity, Ilvesacher sings, well, maybe I'm as guilty as all the rest when it comes right down to the final test. What do I think of this one called Christ? I know it's easy to be enticed into making of him what I'd like to find rather than he who left all behind to take the form of a man like me and lead to death hanging from a tree. Is that the thing I don't like about Jesus? If we're honest, there are lots of things we might not like about Jesus. We might object, for instance, to the suspicious circumstances of his mother's pregnancy. His birth, his humble birth among animals, which every Christmas time we sanitize and sentimentalize into something cute. His promiscuous table practices, he'd eat with anybody. His enlistment of fishermen and a tax collector and an insurrectionist among his disciples. His blessings upon the poor, the mourning, the merciful, the meek, and especially his shameful death on a cross. But this week's story takes the cake. Jesus describes a God who is radically, offensively generous to the undeserving. The context is important. Just before, Jesus had encountered a rich young man. Jesus told him to sell his possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow, which the man gets very upset about. He goes away grieving. Jesus warns his disciples about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven for a wealthy person. It's the famous, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle phrase. And then the disciples wondered, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, for God, all things are possible. But that isn't enough for Peter. Look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? It's easy to sympathize with poor Peter. Peter has left behind a family business, a wife, presumably children, in-laws, probably parents. There's a whole extended family and a whole life that Peter has left behind to follow Jesus. Little wonder he's anxious. So Jesus tells this story, addressing that question. 
What then will we have? The landowner is a strange character indeed. He begins like any landowner would. would. Gets up early in the morning and he hires laborers for the day, agreeing to the going rate. This isn't, this is, a denarius for the day is simply the going rate. He couldn't pay any less than that. It was what the cost of the labor was. And then he goes back around nine to hire more workers. Okay, we might think, maybe he's misjudged how much labor he needs for the day. Maybe he needs to, maybe there's more to harvest or more to weed than he thought he needed. But he goes back again three more times, noon, three, five o'clock. So either, a few things here. He could either be incompetent, not know how much labor he needs. He could be clueless. Or he could have another agenda. He seems to have another agenda, especially after he goes back at five. There'd be little help in hiring helpers for another hour especially if you factor in travel time. At 6 o'clock, at quitting time, the landowner does something strange. He lines them up in reverse order. Last hired, first paid. He doesn't have to do this. He could have done things differently. He could have paid each worker according to the time they'd spent in the vineyard, like any other normal person would have, like any business person would have. An hour, twelfth of a denarius, three hours, a quarter of a denarius, and so on. Or if he'd wanted to be generous, he didn't have to rub it in the faces of those who were first hired. He could have lined them up first hired, first paid, and then the first hired would have been none the wiser about the landowner's generosity. But that's not what happens. He wants to make a point. The landowner operates with a different economic theory than the rest of the world. After all, the motto of the laborer is a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. You work hard, you give your best, and you get what you need for another day. That's fair, right? But the landowner doesn't pay people that way. Instead, he divorces value of labor from payment Altogether. That's what makes this so offensive. Everyone gets a denarius. Everyone gets what they need for the day. It's not about what they earn. It's about what they need. And everyone gets what they need for the day. From the latest workers to the first workers. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Pastor... That sounds like communism. It's not. This isn't communism. There's no seizure of the vineyard by the workers. There's no revolt. There's no grand workers' paradise that can only be achieved if we just kill those pesky landowners. There's none of that happening in this parable. If anything, what we have in the landowner is one who gives A sovereign landowner who gives according to what one needs out of the landowner's own generosity, out of the landowner's own desire to give it. No other obligation at all. 
This sort of radical generosity has a very long history with God's people. Long ago in the desert, God fed God's people with manna and quail, not because they deserved it. If anything, the text makes clear that the people provoked God's anger through their hard-headedness and ingratitude time and time again. They didn't do anything to earn anything. But because God simply desired to give them what they needed, God gave it. Even after the debacles of the golden calf and their refusal to enter the land the first time, when the people turned their backs on God's promises, God still fed the people in the desert. God still gave the people what they needed. Out of nothing but grace. And God continues to give people what they need each day. If some people don't have enough for the day, that's a problem with our distribution, not with God's grace. That's a problem with our generosity, not with God's. God certainly gives us all we need for the day. There couldn't be so much fear about what we have or don't have about whether we have enough. And worse, we can justify someone's lack for the day by their perceived unworthiness. If they don't have enough to eat for the day, clearly they don't deserve to eat. This is clearly counter to what Jesus is telling us here, where Jesus describes a kingdom where God gives enough for all. Not by what they deserve, but by what they need. God is so generous. God is so generous to us, to you and to me. We live in this wonderful community of Alexandria. We worship in this beautiful, well-appointed space. We have capable musicians who are so generous with their time. We have people in this congregation who do amazing work in this community, in the practice of Sharing God's grace with others, God's goodness. And most of us have our bread, our denarius for the day. But most of us, most of all, God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to God and to our neighbors. Jesus Christ shows us the fullness of God's generosity. A generosity that doesn't give us what we deserve, thank God. Who among us is going to stand before God at the last and say, I want you to give me exactly what I deserve? Oh, that's a dangerous thing. Raise your hand, friend. Dangerous thing. Maybe that's the thing we don't like about Jesus. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But it is the thing that gives us, makes us whole again. He gives us what we need. Praise God for God's goodness and love to us in Christ our Lord. Amen.